The responsible design of AI systems requires we do more than develop algorithms that merely perform well. We would also like these systems to be transparent and explainable, for instance, so that we might allow different users to gather appropriate insights about models relevant to their usage contexts. My guest today, Vera Liao, has been studying explainability and transparency in AI systems for years. As a principal scientist at Microsoft Research, she's led and supported incredible work that seeks to, among other things, integrate studies of how humans interact with and understand AI systems. We spoke about her work looking at how we might develop explainability solutions for different users' needs, where existing explainability methods fall short, what transparency might look like in the age of large language models, and much more. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, or if you are new, you may or may not know that the Gradient is a project run by a few engineers, like me, and grad students. The podcast is, at the moment, a one-person effort. If you like what we're doing, it would mean a lot to us and to me if you'd consider supporting us by either writing a review wherever you're listening to this podcast or upgrading to a paid subscription on Substack. But now, without further ado, Vera Liao. Vera, one thing that has always stuck out to me about your research is not just the fact that you're trying to bring a very human-centered perspective to the different topics you study and really probably spend a lot more time with people and thinking about how they interact with systems than I believe most researchers do. But a lot of your work also goes into what I think is contra a lot of the narratives we see about AI today, the path dependence of the way we build systems, the way we build them to interact with people. And I'd really love to hear a little bit about your background and how you got into AI in the first place and sort of got interested in all of this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm being a fan of the podcast. I always find the discussion very thoughtful. So uh, really honored to be here. Um, perhaps um, I will start with kind of my academic identity. Um, I feel probably um, the, the best way to describe myself is that I am a HCI, Human Computer and Russian Research, working on AI technology. I'm often interested in like AI technology that kind of uh, just emerging from research. Uh, hopefully my research can contribute to this, this technical work. Um, as you mentioned, um, my fundamentally, um, my interests are often about um, how people are uh, using this technology or will using that technology, uh, often uh, grounded in specific applications, what are the, the limits or pitfall of this technology as showing people's interaction or use, and also not just the technical part, but also um, how we can design AI application, right, to augment the benefit of this AI technology and also um, mitigate their limitation, their risk and potential harms. Um, so not sure how far you want to go back to my background. Um, I think my quote-unquote journey into AI is a, is a little bit accidental. 
Um, but I would say there are a lot of continuities in terms of the kind of questions I'm interested in. Uh, so I, I did my PhD in computer science, um, but I had a, a lot of training in uh, human factors. My advisor has a college science background, so a lot of my methodologies are uh, experimental, quantitative. My, my PhD work is on this topic of um, diversity enhancing design, right? how we can design system in a way that we can encourage people to seek different diverse opinion, consume diverse opinion, uh, whether it's in this uh, information system like online search or social media context where people discuss controversial topic. So I would say the topic is very broadly situated in the area of studying how uh, people interact with information and how we uh, design information system. And that is still reflected in a lot of my work on uh, studying interaction with AI system. Um, by, by the end of my PhD, around the year 2015, 2016, that was kind of a, the last hype cycle of chatbots. I don't know if you... You remember that time, so um, there's a lot of articles like, oh, the next century is going to be conversational. People don't need to click around on GUI interface. People can talk to computer. I, I got very excited about um, how this kind of system really change people's interaction, how they look for information, consume, they change their behaviors a lot. So I kind of uh, happily jumped on this wagon. That time I also graduated and joined IBM Research. And of course, uh, conversational AI has always been a focus of IBM, like Watson, that goes back to Watson. Um, so I worked on chatbots for, for a few years. I, I would say got a little bit of a disillusion or annoying at that point. Um, I just feel like that time this conversational technology was really not ready. So it's very different from how these days where uh, people are developing LM-based chatbot, ChatGPT. Uh, you really have to like think about, oh, for my chatbot, even it's a very, very small domain, uh, what are the topics I need to cover? What are the intents that people will have with the chatbot? Now you have to train hundreds of thousands of uh, classifiers to recognize those intents. So um, I was annoyed that people have a lot of... Uh, a desire when they think about having conversational interaction, but it's very hard to satisfy that. There's a lot of breakdowns. But I think looking back, uh, what I didn't realize at that point is that this understanding this gap between what technology can do and what people need in this social world and bridge this gap has really become a theme that motivated a lot of my research. Um, I might mention this term social technical gap a lot in, in this discussion. So uh, this is a paper written by uh, Mark Arkman, who is a faculty at University of Michigan that had a lot of impact on me uh, on the field of HCI, which is talking about there is this social technical gap. Um, but it's really inevitable, not just because technology is ready, but because computation, it is in essence, it's about precision, formalization, abstraction. But human needs in the social world, they are very contextual, uh, nuanced, fluid. So this kind of gap is just inevitable. You can try hard to bridge this gap, narrow the gap, but it will always be there. Um, so that, that has become something that, that kind of uh, I struggle with, but also like uh, uh, hopefully help bridge a little bit in my, in my work. 
And another turn of my uh, research came around the year 2019. Um, so at that time, uh, so IBM has a different research department called Trustworthy AI. So uh, this term is used in some uh, organization as responsible AI. So it's really about uh, mitigating risk of harm of AI technology, but it's often started with principles like fairness, explainability, accountability. So I think in 2019, it was also uh, this topic started to gain a lot of traction in academic community conferences like FACT. So around that time, this, this trustworthy AI team, they they want to develop a series of uh, toolkits. The goal is really uh, to make this work in the te- uh, research community, say fairness technique, explainability technique, to be more accessible for practitioners, data scientists, starting with like code libraries or and also educational material. So that team kind of approached me. They, they at that time they want basically like a amateur UX designer to help them think about this uh, uh, user experience design side of things. So I started working on this, this toolkit called the AI Explainability 360, uh, which is, again, hopefully making a dozens of this explainability algorithm accessible for practitioner. But I, I think I was really, again, struggled with or annoyed by, at that time especially, um, there is actually very little adoption in practice to see in product. Even these days, you probably, even we talk about explainable AI a lot, but you probably don't see a lot of uh, explanation in kind of consumer facing products. Um, so at that time, I feel, oh, we're going to put out this dozens or more algorithm, but we really know very little about what kind of explanation people really want. Um, and there's some unique challenge with developing toolkits is your, your user group is not a specific group. You don't even know who exactly are the end users. So it's also very hard to do kind of a traditional user research to, to, to understand that. So starting from there, and then, then that's the kind of starting point for, for me for uh, years of research. I, I try to understand what is this design space of explainable AI or AI transparency um, and also uh, do some uh, human study in specific application and trying to see uh, how people interact with where things might fall short. I can, I'm happy to dig a little deeper into specific studies. This is a great breakdown. And before we get into some specific ways this manifests, I want to start actually with a framing question. One of the first things you said about your research was articulating HCI as sort of contributing to technical work. And I do feel like we're still in a place where maybe, I don't know how to exactly describe the the way it's articulated or the discourse, but it's sort of like we have HCI and we have AI, or we have AI and we have AI explainability. And so it seems like these are still kind of thought of as separate things, right? People do the AI capabilities work And then we start worrying about explanation, interpretability, all of these things that relate to how humans are then going to be interacting with those systems. And I'm curious how in your own work you think about that separation. Is that something that you feel like makes a lot of sense right now? Is that something you hope might disappear a little bit in the future? I'd just love to know how you think about that. Right. Yeah. 
I think that's a that's a great question. That's something I I, I contemplate a lot. I feel. We've seen a lot of progress in the past few years. I feel this whole um, coming from AI field, this framing of human-centered AI, and also responsible AI that uh, emphasizes kind of social technical perspective, understand specific harm, specific issue that we can have with different stakeholder, really help with bringing in uh, HCI perspective and also emphasize why we need uh, HCI. Uh, it definitely, we, I feel like we, we came a long way from the beginning when AI researchers just start talking about human-centered AI. There seems to feel like, oh, we need to reinvent a whole field about how do we do user research, right? I think in my work, there are definitely a lot of people thinking in terms of how we bring the, the, the community together through like also community building, having conferences, workshop to, to, to bring people together. I feel like in my work is also, um, I, I have kind of more practical focus thinking about like where HCI method and practice can actually make a difference. Uh, it also very much, uh, coming with my my own experience as I, I started with oh, working like a designer for chatbot and realized things doesn't work. Uh, I also do a lot of work in terms of uh, working with practitioners, understanding like designers, UX researchers on the ground, what their struggles are. I think one perspective that for, for my work I find really helpful is um, this differentiation of uh, upstream and downstream but there's also many levels of upstream, right? In responsible AI, some people say uh, upstream is about developing an algorithm and downstream is about taking that algorithm or model uh, to be incorporated in applications and people will use them. Um, but there's, I think in practice, there's also, at least there is a level of um, researcher developing AI algorithm. Uh, in practice, there's also data scientists or more engineer making choices in terms of which model to use. There's so many parameters to choose. I think for me, the, 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 the progress also goes from, in the beginning, I was very much focused on what HCI or UX can do for the very downstream, right? Putting an interface, how the UI might look like. Then slowly I go to actually, um, we need to do user research early on to inform which algorithm we choose, which parameters we set. And more and more, I realize there's also fundamental uh, uh, lack of this human perspective in the, the, the research development itself. So I, I, I like to, I don't think I'm there yet, but I, I like to think in terms of the whole ecosystem going from downstream and upstream where HCI methods, HCI perspective can make a difference. You spoke earlier as well about the socio-technical gap, and I suppose one way this manifests also is in that desire for explanation. So to what you're saying about starting downstream with HCI and then going further and further upstream, one really interesting point somebody I heard make recently was this is a little bit more about the interface design component of explanation and interpretability, but the idea was essentially that well, you can go ahead and take your language model that we have today and patch on all of these things that purport to make it more understandable to an end user, to make it more transparent and so on. But if the model you're dealing with itself 
lacks some capability, then in a way you're you're maybe building false trust. You're almost lying to the user. Do you do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I think a lot of my work is actually not in terms of on this interface. We already settled down with uh, settle with uh, with a particular explanation how we change that interface. This is important. There's a lot of communication problem there. But also, uh, there are so many different algorithms, right? They actually provide very different forms of explanation. So we have to start with um, picking the right forms of explanation. And also within that, there are algorithms, whether it's a directly interpretable a model versus using a post hoc that's at a very basic level, Will that make a difference? So I think a lot of my 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 interest is not just in terms of putting a UI on explanation, but how do we pick the right algorithm to begin with? Great. Let's get into some of your specific work. And before we kind of come back to this topic in your specific papers, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the earlier work you did. During your PhD that you talked about, you were studying filter bubbles and expert voices, echo chambers, all these super interesting dynamics that really pertain to the ways that we kind of exist online, the ways we form judgments, we judge others' expertise, the information we respond to. I'm curious just to hear you speak a little bit about what you learned for your studies and maybe some of the takeaways for things like the design of online social communities, any takeaways that you've had yourself, perhaps, and how you use social media, for instance? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so it's been a while, so I'm going to probably talk it at, at a pretty high level, even though uh, some of my interests around this echo chamber is coming back a, little, a bit, especially with current like LM search that also changed how people interact as well. Um, so yeah, for my PhD around that time, I think this is the topic where things like filter bubble, uh, political polarization is very much in the public discourse. Um, in general, my interest was um, how we can design system in a way that would make people a little bit more receptive towards uh, different op opposing opinion. We know that uh, by nature, people have things like confirmation bias, selective exposure that would just naturally gravitate towards uh, looking for uh, conf confirmative or reinforced opinions. Um, at that time also, there's some academic work showing that um, there's very clear individual difference that some people are more open to different opinion or if they, you have such a certain design like showing opinions side by side, some people are more open to click different opinions, some people don't. Uh, so I kind of started with this point of uh, why we have that individual difference. And if you understand why, maybe we can do a little bit better to design for different people. Uh, so I went to read a lot of psychology study of um, selective exposure, confirmation bias. Um, so one, one theory I leveraged was um, why people have different tendency. Um, and there are really kind of two underlying motivation that change people's or determine people's tendency. So one is something called accuracy motivation. That is, um, are you motivated to learn this topic well? Uh, are you motivated to have, have an accurate uh, understanding of, of this topic? And another is uh, defense motivation. That is to 
So it goes back to also the reason we, we look for uh, confirmative opinion is because ultimately we want to avoid uh, cognitive dissonance, this discomfort when we're being challenged, when we have to reconcile different information. But if you have a very high defense motivation, then you have a higher tendency to want to avoid different opinions. Um, but the nice thing is also when you say accuracy, motivation, defense motivation, they're really kind of umbrella term. There can be many reasons contribute that, whether you are, you're just uh, an open-minded person by nature or you are a particular topic, you have a kind of high learning uh, motivation that can also contribute to accuracy motivation. So once we have that, we have kind of scale to infer where this person on the spectrum, for example, of accuracy motivation. Now, now we see a, a huge difference is uh, if someone, I guess, sort of a, a, a little bit of a, a, a sad results from the, from the from some of the study we did was um, we tried a lot of kind of intervention, uh, so different designs to hopefully make people more open to different opinion. Um, but it almost always only worked for people who already kind of have high accuracy motivation to begin with. And in our study, interesting is constantly around like 25% people. And for the rest of 75% people, it was actually very hard to, to large them to change opinion. And then we tried kind of different designs, for example, for people who have high accuracy motivation, what we want to do is highlight the content itself has values that uh, the content uh, bring different perspective. There's some common ground. The content uh, uh, is, is, is really helpful versus for people who have lower accuracy motivation. Sometimes we have to uh, leverage more this kind of a, a heuristic based uh, narch that uh, trigger them to think, OK, this this is a different opinion, but it maybe come from experts or come from very reliable source that may help a little bit. But we did see this this individual difference that has a make a huge uh, uh, difference in terms of how how open, how receptive people to different designs. This is maybe a, a variant of a very classic question that's been asked about a billion times, but how much do you think tech and interface design can do about moving people from being more defensive about their ideas, about their, you know, whatever they think, versus being a little bit more open-minded and, and looking for accuracy? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a hard question. I think... Uh, um especially given how, how things are going in the past few years. I'm not like super uh, optimistic. And, and I, to be honest, like after some of the study did, seeing that only 25% people can be large, like that does feel, make me feel uh, less optimistic as well. But I think the, the point is um, we, we have to understand the mechanism, right? Um, if we know that this defense motivation is something make a huge difference, then what we need to target is to uh, mitigate or bring down people's defense motivation. And this can be in terms of design that starting with first acknowledging people's position, acknowledging there are common ground before injecting different opinions. Um, so I think that uh, from the mechanism side, that would be helpful, but I don't have the number. I don't have the conclusion. Say like how 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 quantitatively how how much what percentage people will actually be open to that. That's fair. 
Let's get a little bit into some of your more recent work on explainability. And I do want to flag here for anybody listening that we are talking about explainability versus interpretability, different things. And maybe Vera, you'd be a really good person just to kind of lay out what are some maybe misconceptions or ways people tend to conflate topics or or misunderstand explainability. Yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, that's a Good point to start. What's the difference between explainability and interpretability? But I'm actually not a big fan of um, getting very bogged down into that. I feel uh, even in the academic literature, people use different scope. Uh, people cite like philosophy literature, psychology literature to define the term. But you clearly see some people think interpretability is only about or narrower than explainability. For example, one version of definition is interpretability is more about if the model itself is easy to understand, intuitive, for example, decision tree may be inherently interpretable. Um, While other people would uh, use the definition, interpretability is broader than explainability. So I will start with the definition that uh, explainability is about uh, enabling human understanding. And that really kind of ground this definition in terms of What's the goal? It's really about understanding. It's, 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 it's human-centered. And maybe in this conversation, we, we can adopt that definition and uh, uh, stick more with it, this term of uh, explainability. Um, I, I do differentiate, though, between um, transparency and explainability. More, more and more lately, I've been using the term transparency because um, Explainability, especially with explanation, people think more in terms of um, the model's process or the internal, uh, how it makes a decision, why it gave a certain input. But transparency can be broader than that. There can be this mechanistic transparency about uh, the, the mechanism. Uh, there's also can be functional transparency in terms of uh, uh, what's the model's capability that may be communicated by evaluation. Uh, And also we can care about this kind of more um, process-oriented transparency, right? How was the model developed? What's the training data? So these are what I would say uh, how I define transparency. Um, So so yeah, that's uh, that's, maybe we can use those definitions for this discussion. Great. Let's talk about one way in which you've investigated some of the algorithmic work on this topic. And I think a great paper to start with is questioning the AI. You worked on this while you were at IBM. I'd love for you to maybe introduce some of the the thinking you were doing here. You interviewed different UX design practitioners and, and developed a question bank. Could you tell me a little bit about the motivations there? Yeah, yeah, happy to. So that really goes back to what I mentioned in the beginning when I was working on this toolkit, my, my struggle with... Um, this gap of uh, these are the technology, but we really don't know how what kind of explanation people need. But there's also a fundamental challenges here. Uh, the downstream adoptions are are delayed, right? Practitioners have not started using it. You are not seeing a lot of end user feedback. So the question is really, I'm interested in this whole design space of what kind of explanation people need. But how can I even probe that design space if I don't find like real world implementation to do it? Um, so the way how I approach this, I first is I realize um, designer uh, who are often 
doing this bridging role, that they have a good understanding of what their user need, what kind of user uh, they are working with. Then they also trying to bridge this technical affordance limitation they're working with. So they can give me a lot of insights. If I talk to one designer, I can have a pretty good understanding of their domain. So I started out doing this research. I'm just going to talk to many designers to have a view of what are different applications. Um, but then another challenge here is also um, practitioner at that point, they might not be familiar with those algorithms and you really don't want to bother them with a lot of the detail of these algorithms. So we had this idea of we want to create a, a, a socio-technical abstraction. I'm not going to talk about uh, what the algorithm does, um, but there are social science literature and HCI literature as well suggesting that uh, people's explanatory goal, what they want from explanation, can be expressed by the question they ask. If you say, ask a why question, a how question, a what if question, those are different kinds of uh, explanation you are looking for. So we, we basically take those kind of work and decide to run uh, what an explainability algorithm can do in terms of what kind of question they can, they can answer. Uh, what we're also looking at is what are some other questions people might ask that's not addressed by, by this um, current explainability algorithm. So uh, we first did using some of the survey paper, looking at what are the common forms of explanation and map to what are the questions they can answer. For example, um, if you have a, a global kind of explanation, tell you what's the general logic, that maybe answer a how question versus a local uh, explanation tell you, oh, for this particular prediction is because this particular important feature. Uh, and that's answer a why question. And then a co another common category is a counterfactual explanation. Say if you change this input a little bit, you get a different output. That maybe answer a why not question. Uh, so we have this kind of a common question that current algorithm can address as a starting point. We bring that to designers. We ask them, oh, tell us about a particular application you work on. Uh, and then what are some common questions you, you imagine your user will ask uh, to understand AI? And then we also discuss these common categories of why, how, what if, do, do they appear in their application? Um, yeah, so, so I would say another point is at that time, I, I think uh, when I look back, I realized it's actually uh, what people have in terms of question is broader than understanding internal process. So it's actually closer to how I see transparency these days. So you would say a lot of question is not just about uh, why question, how question, but also the data question, the performance question, the, the input output space question. So uh, one contribution we try to make is have this we call XAI question bank, which are more than 50 uh, questions we gather from this interview, talking to more than 20 designers. Um, and then also their categories in different uh, clusters. Uh, and also we're trying to have some high level uh, takeaway in terms of for this kind of question, what explanation people actually want, what are the reasons, how we might provide explainability for that category. And also do some kind of a gap analysis to show, oh, 
uh, current algorithms are focusing on this category, but actually people have a lot of questions around, for example, data around uh, this counterfactual question that may not very well addressed by current algorithms. As you talk about in a lot of places, different users are going to have different sorts of questions. There might be different levels of abstraction that are appropriate for different users. And we can do a pretty good job of categorizing what questions a particular user might be most interested in, and then figure out what explainability, what other techniques are most appropriate to that situation. Do you think that there is ever an unknown unknowns question where maybe a user has a vague idea of what they want to know about a system, but perhaps for that user, it is really vitally important that they know something and they just don't know that they're supposed to know that thing? Or do you think that's just like a skill issue? Or do you think there's maybe something inherent there? Do you think that there are cases where people just genuinely can't figure that out? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I definitely acknowledge that there's limits to what we can probe with the questions. Uh, you make a very good point. There are, are no unknowns. Probably another perspective that's helpful is uh, I think of explainability not in terms of just what the the what we need to review by algorithm. I think we need to take a goal-oriented stance, right? Ultimately, people want explanation is because there is a knowledge gap for them to reach some kind of goal. Um, but this 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 gap is also dependent on that particular goal. Um, so it may be helpful, like whether when we're design or when we're doing evaluation in terms of whether this, this explanation design is enough, is by articulating that goal first. And then if we say in this case of decision support or in this use case of uh, uh, debugging a model, ultimately it can help us to see uh, even we try to answer this question people raised in the beginning, there's still some gap for them to reach that goal. And that helps us to eternally to probe where, where this knowledge gap is, right? Um, maybe that's filled by explanation, but there's also, I think, another point is we, we kind of have to take a broader view in terms of uh, information support, right? It can be information about the model's process. But sometimes it's actually about uh, information about the domain, information about this social context, or information about uh, how do I see this AI system work in general. So it's, it's all these different kinds of knowledge gap we need to, uh, need to fill. And very likely you will not be able to uh, completely uh, fulfill that knowledge gap in one try. So you have to do it uh, in a more iterative fashion. One unfortunate or exciting thing about question banks, depending on how you look at it, is this evolution that seems necessary as AI systems themselves evolve, as people realize, hey, there are new things we can do with these systems. And so as user perhaps personas, as user goals develop, how do you think about the, I suppose, meta question of how do we sort of help users evolve the kinds of questions that they need to ask? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, I think by, yeah, I guess there's also a lot of work around how do we improve AI literacy? I feel like that's definitely a place to start. But there's also 
a point that I think you make a good point in terms of uh, kind of proactively fill the knowledge gap, right? That also requires potentially studying where this general people's mental model is currently. Uh, I think I, I I think a lot in terms of right now with uh, the introduction of a large language model, but it's also so much people's uh, mental model or public perception is shaped by this uh, very complex mechanism in terms of how companies are promoting this technology, uh, how particular application like the ChatGPT that people are first introduced to. Uh, so there are definitely risks in terms of people have kind of flawed mental model or flawed perception. Um, so I think that we, we definitely also need research to, to study where people are in terms of their mental model. And we're seeing some HCI study looking at there are already common wrong perception when people think about is this um, a, something generated by AI or is something human-ridden? And how people come up with heuristics or rules to differentiate them. But there's already pretty common percep- uh, misperception that people already share. So I feel this kind of research in terms of common perception, common misperception is also really important. Um, and then we can probably start thinking about how as technologists or designer, we can proactively um, correct misperception or fill this kind of common gaps in the understanding. You have another observation in this paper that I actually found rather important. You said that informants that you worked with had to work with other product goals that might be at odds with explainability. And you spoke earlier a little bit about how explainability isn't something we're seeing as much when it comes with companies' AI products, but there certainly are a number right now of for-profit companies that do align themselves with a vision of offering transparency, of offering explainability for users' ML systems. And I wonder if you think that there's an inherent tension there when it comes to, I'm a for-profit company, but then also I'm offering what is purported to be an explainable AI solution. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. I think there are um, really several reasons we don't see that in, in production. I, I would, again, I would say it depends on uh, what kind of product you, you are working with. I feel explanation, explainability is probably more common in kind of analytical tool or enterprise tool compared to uh, end users. Um, I think one challenge that's probably true to a lot of responsible AI efforts is just uh, they take efforts, they take hard work. I think explainability or fairness, those kind of problems are really hard problem. That's not something, um, for example, you can evaluate with a benchmark and then, then, then be done with it. You have to put a lot of kind of effort and time in there. Um, so often this responsible AI effort is just at odds with product's timeline because it's, 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 it's time-consuming. It requires a lot of uh, collaboration between designers, user research, and data scientists that in a lot of product, we just don't have that kind of uh, process to, to support that. I think that's a that's structural barrier that's, that's, that's just hard to overcome at this point. Um, but there's also situation that transparency or explainability feature 
that can be awards with other uh, other uh, concern like security concerns or privacy concern. Um, these are also, uh, I would say, uh, very much actively researched topic. I've seen some kind of interesting solution on the practitioner side how how to how to get around it. Um, but we do have to see sometimes uh, transparency feature do do come at a cost of potentially security risk as well. Sure. One one last thought I had with this paper was an articulation, I think towards the end that I particularly liked, where you note that prior work repeatedly point at, pointed out that a prerequisite for explanations is to be interactive because, and in your words, explanation is a grounding process where people incrementally close belief gaps. And there's that word gap coming up again. Could you spend a second unpacking that a little bit for me, how you think about the interactive component of this, since I think we haven't dug into that yet. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think, as you said, right, fundamentally, um, explanation or uh, trying to build a common ground, it is a social process in our human-to-human -human interaction. Um, so... By interactive, uh, there are many different forms, right? So people ask different kinds of questions um, be because you, you have different kind of gap, you have different goals. You may also ask follow-up questions if uh, your, your understanding is not completely, completely fulfilled. So I think just coming from this human-human uh, explanation point of view, it's just by nature uh, an interactive process. I think it's very intuitive for us to uh, um, pursue interaction technique or explainability technique that's that's more more interactive because this is a a gap filling process this is a grounding process uh, and then very natural for people to uh, ask different questions asking follow-up questions so um, that's definitely I feel the direction that, that the field is going and should going uh, and something that I, I myself is very excited about. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that vision. Let's move on to a couple of, of your other papers along this domain. And so you had this work that was looking into social transparency with Upal Asan. And I think there's a, a lot of really interesting framing here, but maybe we could just quickly talk a little bit about the the main ideas here and, and what you kind of hope people take away from this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe you interviewed Upo at some point. Uh, he was on the podcast a while ago. Yes, yes. yes. Um, I would say this is really like uh, his baby, his his work. I yeah. did more of a, a supporting role in this work. Um, I think the the point there are several aspects that we kind of start working on this together. Uh, one is, so at that point, he started pushing this kind of a social a technical perspective. Um, but I, I, I've been thinking in terms of this uh, goal-oriented perspective, we have to understand people's goal. And of course, uh, inherent in that is uh, people is not working in isolation. They are, they are situated in a particular kind of social context. Their goal and they, their, their needs is very much shaped by this kind of context. So we, we came to work together because we, we both hold this kind of view of we have to understand this uh, socio-technical context to inform what explanation is needed. 
uh, and then uh, another point about this social technical perspective where Wupo really brought in with the initial idea is that uh, also from this informational perspective, um, what people often need to understand to achieve their end goal, let's take this decision-making context, is not necessarily within the model. It's not just the, how the model makes the decision, um, but also other kinds of factor that governs uh, the use of the model. So we have to not just understand this technical system, but understand the socio-technical system. But of course, it's, it's, it's hard to, to practically to think about what's a, what's a feature that helps people understand this socio-technical system. So we had a lot of discussion, and then we kind of went back to uh, some of the uh, social computing uh, CSW literature in terms of uh, on a, a social media or social network, right? How do you try to have some transparency in terms of the social uh, network? What you can do is uh, making other people's interaction traces, uh, uh, record them and make them available transparency. So we inspired by that idea, we, we essentially resort to this idea of um, recording and make it visible how other people uh, interacted with this AI system, uh, their reasoning, why they accept AI decision or not. And their reasoning is can be qualitative, it can cover many different aspects. For example, I'm not accepting this AI decision because there's a new policy change or uh, there are some kind of factor feature that's not really in the model's decision. Um, so yeah, so and then uh, we had this uh, framework, which is, is pretty intuitive. Uh, I think people, uh, we call it a 4W. So who interacted with the system? What happened uh, uh, when that interaction happened? And why? Why did they, for example, in decision context, is accepted or rejected? And then we make them Available in a very rudimentary form is maybe like a, like a Yelp review to see how other people uh, made their decision. But that's a, that's sort of a kind of a, a, a initial idea where we're exploring, and we just show have a study to show even just presenting this kind of a review format can help a lot in terms of understanding the AI and more importantly how people uh, achieve their end goal to have the information they need. One broad idea this introduces to our conversation that I think hasn't come up so far is that looking at things as not just I am a human who is working with an AI system and there's maybe a gap here, I'm trying to understand this thing external from me, but perhaps as Azupal has articulated this, a human AI assemblage. This is all kind of molded together. And as you put it, the socio-technical system as a singular whole. and. It seems like maybe as things evolve or in different papers, there is one or the other of these views. There is the human AI assemblage or there is the human who is maybe sitting apart from an AI system trying to understand it. Do you think or where do you maybe think that these perhaps somewhat different views of, of what's going on might be more or less useful? Yeah, I think we need both. I think there's a longer not debate, but, but I guess perspective in HCI that some part of HCI is more um, inspired by cognitive science that pays more attention in terms of how individual attend to information, process information, those kind of questions. And another side is maybe more kind of a social science, sociology inspired that pay attention to 
this whole socio-technical system, how people interact as, as a group or interact as assemblage. I think they, they, we need both. They serve very different, they serve complementary purposes, I think. Of course, when you are, especially when you are uh, designing a system ultimately being deployed, you have to uh, have that understanding of the social context and then the tool in terms of how we approach this uh, socio-technical system, the method is will be really, really important. And a lot of issue you have to understood by situated in a socio-organizational context. Uh, while this more kind of cognitive perspective, I think that uh, give us uh, uh, sometimes a pretty rigorous understanding in terms of what exactly is happening um, in this whole interaction uh, process or in this quality process when people are, are working with a particular system. And sometimes, of course, they can, they can uh, inform each other, right? For example, if you understand how uh, individually uh, people process information or interact with a particular interface, that will also give you some power to infer collectively if there are different kinds of people, some people follow this process, that process, how things may work uh, in, in, in a network and that there are also methodology, for example, uh, agent-based modeling or that kind of leverage uh, this bring these two perspectives together. Yeah, one, one other way to think about it perhaps is just looking at these two views as almost different levels of, of abstraction. As you said, we do have to understand psychologically how humans work, how they interact with things, maybe how they interact with technology just in general and what pitfalls and benefits that has. And then on the other hand, we have the technology. This is a whole rabbit hole that we can understand on its own. And then sort of bringing that up together, we're going up a level of abstraction when we talk about the sort of human AI collective. And, and I'm sure that maybe misses the mark in some ways, but perhaps that's another way of thinking about it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think uh, this uh, different abstraction is 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 uh, definitely the the one angle to think about it. As I said, like you can uh, going from the level of uh, individual interaction that also give you ways or framework to infer how things might ca- happen at a collective level. Another tack on this that you've worked on is this connecting algorithmic research and usage contexts paper which I think brings in some, some new things to this discussion that will be really interesting. And by this point, you were at the FATE group at MSR. FATE, by the way, is like the coolest name for a research group <laughs> ever. I think it's like totally unfair that, that MSR got that name. But anyway, um, on this paper, you're looking at, I suppose, the, the gaps between algorithmic research and then bringing in some words we've spoken about again, downstream usage context, where you want to contribute basically these taxonomies of explainable AI evaluation criteria and prototypical usage contexts, right? Can you maybe introduce some of the ideas that came up in this paper and some of the more important takeaways? Yeah, so that's a paper I feel really, I was at a point of, uh, I was working on like studying practitioner, particular application for a while. I feel that was a point I'm kind of stepping back to see what I have learned about uh, different application, different different practice. And also at a point, as, as I mentioned in the beginning, that I feel we need to kind of go in further up on this um, upstream, upstream chain. Um, ultimately, we can 
think about all these different methods in terms of how do we pick the right algorithm. But if we don't have the right algorithm to begin with, then, then we, just, we just have nothing to work with. Um, so at that point, I, I think one, one thing I was struggling with, so I was reading a lot of literature in terms of uh, uh, explainability evaluation, what are the criteria, what are the methods. Um, and then in the, in the literature, for example, people have kind of dozens of uh, criteria, right? Just what to evaluate for. Is it faithfulness? Uh, is it conciseness? Those kind of things. But there's really a, 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 a one-size-fits-all solution, uh, sorry, assumption that seems to say what is are important. Um, but first, um, they're just impossible to, to satisfy all the criteria, right? If you want to have uh, this, this uh, criteria, for example, comprehensiveness, right? It may be often at odds with uh, conciseness, for example. Um, and then another point is, I work on different kinds of applications, seeing practitioner working with different applications. Um, they do have very different uh, uh, needs that people have, right? For example, uh, just take two common use cases that you have data scientists that you want explanation to debug the model. And very commonly, if you see the system that people have is... Um, it's very comprehensive. There are global explanation, local explanation, but it's also complex. Like data scientists are very familiar with visualization. Versus if you're looking at uh, a decision support system, let's say uh, um, a medical imaging system that you want to help a doctor to make a judgment should they follow the AI's uh, recommendation. Then first is um, what they care about. The main thing they care about is is this particular prediction trustworthy or not? So their goal is to detect the error of that particular prediction. And second, they're, they're very much uh, time constrained, so they don't want very complex interface. They don't want very complex uh, uh, information. So they clearly have different uh, success criteria when you're thinking about uh, explanation. So... Um, my goal is uh, really highlight this perspective of uh, context dependency of uh, evaluation criteria. Um, what I did was we took this literature survey of there are dozens of uh, a dozen of uh, uh, evaluation criteria talked in in the explainability literature. But there's also a lot of HCI work studying application, including our work, looking at this, the whole space. And then we can have a taxonomy of at least common use cases of explanation. Then we want to illustrate that in this different use case, for example, model debugging, um, bias detection or fairness judgment, decision support. Um, there are two more. I'm kind of going blank. Uh, we want to show the, 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 the priority in terms of criteria are different. So we had this methods of um, scenario-based survey that we recruit both uh, experts of explainable AI and also targeted end user of a particular application. We gave them this scenario of you are uh, using this application, you have this particular use case in mind, really prime that with the use case and then ask them to rate this list of 12 different criteria, which one matters, how important each one is. 
And we can clearly show that uh, even just with this method of asking people's opinion, there is a clear difference. For example, again, um, with, with data, with the debugging, what people care a lot is whether it's faithful, give them the, the, the very faithful information about how the model work, comprehensiveness, versus in a decision support context, the, the, the most important thing people care about is how we detect if the model is confident, if the model is wrong. Um, while they can even sacrifice some level of uh, faithfulness of the explanation. Um, so yeah, so it's, it, I would say um, it's, it's more of a framing paper. We want to highlight its contact dependency with some empirical study we show there's indeed already a difference. One of your findings in this paper that you talk about is that, and I, I guess I'm quoting here, that across all contexts, faithfulness was considered the most important criterion. And I have my own intuitions about why this might be the case, but I'm curious to hear your reasoning for for why that was true. Yeah, um, I think it was that that is actually very consistent with uh, what the academic uh, literature uh, think about the space uh, because this use of post hoc explanation, right, faithfulness is 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 one of the evaluation criteria I would say most work uh, dedicated to because. There's a whole risk of uh, you can use post hoc explanation, but they're not really faithful to uh, what model actually doing. Then, of course, there's a lot of risk that you're not giving people the, the right information. Uh, so it's not too surprising for me that it is considered important. It's somewhat actually interesting to see in some cases, uh, for example, when people want to have and the user want to have control. Uh, they can sacrifice the faithfuls a little bit as long as the, the explanation is helpful for them to achieve their end goal. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Another one of the things you pointed out in this paper was sort of about the different types of explanations users might seek and the benefits of those. And it seems like comparatively, when you look at example-based explanations, they seem to come up ahead in your picture on, on almost every front that I can think of. And I'm curious if you could speak to just maybe some limitations, some issues with example-based explanations broadly. Hmm, that's a that's a good question. I think the first uh, response is I think um, the field used the term example-based explanation kind of broadly. There are many different kinds of example-based explanation that you can find influential example from the data. You can uh, construct example that's most similar to this case. Uh, you can uh, show example explanation with ground truth or without ground truth. Um, I think one probably the limitation about challenge is um, how do we differentiate them in terms of their their benefit um, or drawbacks. I think we we don't have a very clear picture. Of some of our most recent work trying to trying to get there there's another uh uh limitation is also um they don't necessarily directly get to the process right they give you some analogy for you to think about why for this particular case things go this way or that um, but it may not give people a whole picture um, of how the model actually work with different features so 
one limitation I can see is they maybe have limited generalizability in your understanding. You can understand this particular use case, particular uh, input, but you might not be able to generalize that to, to other examples or other inputs. Right. And I, I guess, as you point out, still, despite these things, it is a clear improvement, it feels, over feature-based explanations, which, as you said, in a few places are just kind of incompatible with the ways people reason. I think before we move on to some of the more recent work, and that's, I think, where we'll get really deep into LLMs and, and some of your recent work on that, another very important branch of your work is uncovering pitfalls in existing methods. And I think we've spoken in some broad strokes about things like whether there's an inherent limit to what an explainable AI method can do. But this is something that's been studied in a lot of places, and you've had a few papers on this front. I'm curious what maybe the most important findings have been to you among the research you've done exploring some of these pitfalls. Right, right. I think there are some are important in terms of the finding and some are in, important in terms of the takeaway message. I think that the one of the longest line of my work is understanding why this very, very popular feature-based important explanation just doesn't work well for decision support. Uh, so we started with one paper that's published in, in FACT 2020 that was with my former IBM colleague, Yunfeng Zhang and Rachel Bellamy. Um, so it was not, it was a little bit accidental. So we're running an experimental study. We're looking at a kind of different uh, information about uh, decision support ML system. So the basic setup is um, you have an ML system that's making a prediction. Let's say uh, this person belongs to a high income or low income group. And then you have this human decision maker trying to make a final judgment, which essentially is to decide, do I rely on this model's prediction or not? Uh, we find that this very popular feature importance explanation tell you this person is a high income group because they have a long education or this person did some uh, particular types of job, uh, actually reduce people's decision accuracy somewhat compared to not showing explanation at all, just showing the model prediction. Um, and similar finding has also been uh, replicated in many other studies in HCI. Um, and that kind of set me to do years of work, just understand why, why this is happening. Um, so I think maybe two, two work that's most relevant. One is another paper with Upo, um, the title is Explainable to Whom. Um, we're essentially trying to get to like how people actually interact with explanation. Um, but the general finding is perhaps if you're looking back, not, not too surprisingly that People, even AI experts, they don't necessarily very carefully reason about the explanation. Um, we know like from reading books like Thinking Fast and Slow, people can have this uh, slow thinking, uh, carefully reason about information, make a rational judgment, but people can also actually often resort to this fast thinking by uh, invoke heuristic. What we find essentially is that People already have a lot of overly positive heuristics about explanation that associating, oh, this model can explain itself. It must be intelligent. It must be trustworthy. It's being transparent. So that leads to this over-trusting, over-reliance when people working with the AI system that is explainable. 
Uh, and, and a more recent work um, with Valerie Chen, who is an intern last year, um, that we're using this kind of old, good old uh, psychology method to ask people to think aloud. They do a decision task, we ask them to just verbalize what they're thinking. And we're trying to see what exactly is happening. So that was what we find it as even in situation where people are cognitively engaged, we're already forcing them to articulate their reasoning process. There are still limitations. Um, one reason is because, um, so if you want to detect model error, what you, you do is you have to apply some kind of domain knowledge or your own rationale to say the model's rationale is wrong. But the feature-based explanation actually interacts with people's own rationale. Uh, they are pretty uh, visually overwhelming, right? They, 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 they highlight important feature and then they disrupt people's own reasoning. If you don't show that explanation, they may have a clear reason of this person should be a high-income high job because they have a certain job. When you show explanation, you are essentially trying to convince people the model's reasoning, that people become weaker in terms of their, their own rationale. And also, uh, human rationale is very much qualitative. You can say a certain job should have high impact in terms of income, but it's very hard for you to say job should have 20% more uh, contribution than, than uh, education. And once people are, are confronted with this very quantitative, precise explanation, again, they, they feel like less confident about themselves than they decided to, to, to resort to the model. So. I feel at, at this point, I finally have a relatively good understanding why it has that limitation. Um, but I think the, higher, the, the more takeaway message for me is a lot of times um, algorithms may have pitfall because it's not competitive or compatible with people's cognitive process. And we really have to do empirical understanding uh, to see how things fail and also uh, learn from psychology theories, cognitive science about people actually uh, process information to see where this, there is the gap that needs to be filled. There are a lot of intersections here. And one of the ones I want to drag out a little bit that you brought up is the ideal system to thinker. And that's kind of the ideal user we have versus the real user who engages in cognitive heuristics. And this maybe does not play so nicely with the affordances of just technical systems in general, which do not slow down. And when you think about the ways that people want to implement what is considered a good user experience, we want things to be fast. We want people to get feedback quickly. But there is a lot of work in slow algorithms. And I think you've also done some work yourself on seamful styles of interaction, where we actually selectively expose people to the pitfalls and the systems they're dealing with. But maybe speaking just to that slowing down thing, I, I think like Byung-Chul Han is somebody who's brought this up in a really like interesting way that I like, where he talks about the way that technical systems we use today are just inherently opposed to slow, deliberate contemplation, that system two thinking that you're thinking about. And this makes me wonder, do you think that some of the XAI methods that you know maybe are not the best on their own, but then combined with the design affordance, something like a slow algorithm, could help nudge people's cognitive processes in the directions that you might want when it comes to being a little bit more contemplative when 
they are dealing with an explainability method. Yeah, you're very much on point. I think um, how do we slow people down is something many people are 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 working on these days. I think uh, you mentioned this very new new work we've been doing with the uh, simple design. So. Um, it is a, a long-standing uh, thought or or uh, literature in the HCI field that um, is this kind of opposition of simple design versus seamless design, right? Often people think in terms of a uh, seamless design is a virtual. You 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 plug and play. You don't need people don't need to think about it. People don't even in the Ubicon world like people don't even need to be aware there is a computer. Um, but that actually creates a lot of problem um, because first, like, uh, again, coming back to the socio-technical gap, right? So there's really not possible to have a seamless technology. Whenever we put a computation in a particular context, there's always seams, there's always breakdown. Uh, so we, we need to actually expose them. Of course, this uh, the, 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 the key point is how do we make a deliberate decision in terms of what to expose, what not to expose. You don't want to completely ruin the user experience by only having people seeing scenes. Um, so there is a, a, a process to really uh, deliberate on what are the themes where things might break down and also deliberate on uh, what kind of breakdown we want to expose to people um, that matters for, again, for their end goal. So that's sort of the very, very high level of that sinful uh, sinful work. Um, and another thing, another side you, you touched on is uh, how how we can do better, uh, whether in decision support or in general, uh, in terms of slowing people down. Um, so one line of work we're seeing is um, considering this kind of a cognitive enforcing function of how do we slow people down. This can be literally just um, uh, encourage people to take more time to think about it. Or you can create some uh, uh, friction in the interaction that, for example, not uh, showing all the information first, but encourage people to make their own decision first, and then showing the models, explanation of models uh, um, uh, decision. Um, and I think another kind of uh, shift, especially in this AI decision support context I'm, I'm very happily seeing right now is this shifting away from supporting end decision because once you give people this end decision it it can create a kind of issue that uh, people skip the whole deliberative process but instead supporting um verification or human reasoning and that can require us to rethink this whole ai assistance par- paradigm right for example what helps may not may, may not be model maker decision but model doing some kind of summarization uh, or model look through the documentation and, and give you information support. So we don't have to be obsessed with this idea of model supporting final decision is, is, is another direction that we should think about. I like that, that there are many different ways and places in that process that a model can plug in. And the summarization, maybe there's a way in which I can kind of refine my own thinking with the model as an interlocutor along the way to making a final decision. And maybe I, I prompt the model to do something like reflect back at me in a particular way, the judgments that I've made or something, and then maybe my biases become more apparent to me or something like that. Those seem really useful. 
I want to work towards your recent paper with Jennifer Wortman-Vahan on AI transparency in the age of LLMs. And so as a place to begin, as you mentioned, you worked on chatbots at IBM Research and became a little bit disillusioned. I'd love to hear a bit about how that experience and your work there informed how you were thinking about chatbots and how you kind of responded to this whole like chat GPT instruction tuning moment that we're in. Yeah, that's a that's a great question to start. Um, I think in the beginning, like many people probably, I was very excited because I understood in the last hype cycle how hard it is to develop a good chatbot and I even have somewhat fluent interaction that does not break down. So when I first worked, uh, interact with ChatGPT, for example, I was like, oh, this is so much better. Uh, but of course, um, it brings many other kinds of problems, like hallucination is actually hard to control. In fact, if you see a lot of uh, um, products right now, people are very hesitant to directly utilize uh, LM to, to power the whole chatbot, right? We're still seeing some combination of old way, for example, still define the kind of intents you want to cover. Maybe you can use LM to generate some training data for your intents. Um, I think just forego the whole control to, to LM at this time is not, not the right approach with, with chatbot. Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this time because my kind of my general interest in this social technical gap, I find is a really interesting time that uh, um, there's such an emerging technology and then there's so many diverse ways people are developing application, not just uh, chatbot, right? Writing support, those kind of things are, are we're seeing more kinds of application. And, and it's, it's a time we have to, it's exciting, but also also time that we, we really need to uh, understand the pitfall, reflect on also what are the different kinds of use cases, what is the space that things may fail um, to, to, be, to be really, really careful. Coming back to like what's the what perspective informed that particular paper is is I think for me um, very much is this idea as you you said in the beginning we want to resist the urge of inevitability that everything is changing we have to do things completely differently of course chatbot uh, is something that people have worked on. Uh, decades and decades, there's so many lessons to learn, and same with, with transparency. Um, so we kind of uh, started at a time, of course, you are seeing a new kind of technical excitement, like mechanistic interpretability, and people start thinking about new algorithm. But there's just so much we can learn from these years of research on AI transparency. So our kind of high-level goal is really to highlight we don't have to start from scratch. And there are some really important lessons we need to learn from this past five, 10 years of AI transparency research. And uh, once we equip with those lessons, we can carefully think about how things might be different. So how we structure that paper is essentially starting with uh, the, the, the lessons learned. And I, I would say two aspects. One is we have to embrace diverse transparency approach is not just about explanation. We have to also think about 
uh, transparent model reporting, like model cards, um, communicating evaluation results, and uh, uh, communicating model uncertainty. And these are very basic aspects to think about. And then also there are so many important lessons of this um, human-centered perspective, right? Starting with um, people have different goals with transparency, with understanding, and we have to think about uh, what are the goals in this age of LMs. And then from the usage, there's also lessons about uh, this cognitive process, right? This due process or where this cognitive process may not be compatible. And then also think about, uh, for example, um, the, the stakeholder perspective, right? Who, who, are the, who are the new stakeholders, uh, how things might change in the ecosystem. And then we can begin to ask um, how things are different. So what are the unique challenges? So we summarize uh, a few lessons in that, not lessons, a few uh, points in that paper about how things might be different. And each of these differences may give rise to new questions in terms of uh, why evaluation might not uh, work this way, why explanation might not work this way, right? I think the, the, the points, if I think about it, uh, is kind of in four areas of how things might, how, what are the unique challenge in terms of transparency for IRM. Uh, the first one is um, more technology specific. Right. This is a different kinds of model. Um, they, they have complex, diverse capability. Uh, and also they have uncertain capability, right? They have emerging behavior. Uh, they can be steered by different prompts. So there's a very fundamental challenge that even for model developer themselves, they may not be fully anticipate what is the capability. So that gives to rise to very fundamental challenges of how do we even start to characterize the model capability? You've seen some work, for example, either um, they try to just use uh, the description of uh, smaller uh, generative models, right? You can say the model can do QA, can do summarization, but is that enough or even useful to cover the capability of large language model? And then uh, some people maybe start thinking about, oh, what are the human cognitive capability and use that to describe the model? But will that kind of description characterization useful, for example, if I'm a practitioner trying to decide, do I use this model for my, for my application? So that's on the, on the, on the technology side. Um, there's also a side is this kind of a new application people are developing, right? Um, and then also... Um, so, so how it is changing the whole ecosystem that people are developing application. Like, uh, we're seeing on the ground, for example, um, very commonly practitioners are not directly use the base GPT model. They're doing a lot of adaptation work, whether it's writing uh, prompts or doing fine tuning. And also a lot of things happen at orchestration level, doing grounding or having the, uh, the uh, uh, plug-in to, to operate ML. So I have to also think about this different kinds of application. Do they need the new transparency approach to whether explain how the system work or characterize the system? And there's also, also a question of uh, who are the new stakeholders, right? Again, you change this, um, change this ecosystem. For example, you have this new role of doing uh, prompt, prompt engineer, or maybe a designer or product manager is doing the prompting, right? They maybe have particular needs in terms of 
can I have explanation to improve the prompt I have? So we have to think about this new application, new ecosystem, and uh, this new uh, um, stakeholders' needs. And some of the application, for example, many of them are natural interface, interactive interface. So that also changes the kind of modality the design space we work with. Uh, but last point is also we have to also consider um, the challenge in terms of the whole social societal context of how things are changing, right? Of course, um, organizations, uh, the 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 companies that putting out LM, they may not have incentive to provide transparency, and this kind of problem cannot be approached as a technical design problem. We have to think about policy. And also, again, coming back to what I mentioned uh, earlier, this changing public perception, how they are shaped by this hype, shaped by how companies are, are, are communicating this technology. And that creates a huge challenge in terms of transparency because ultimately it's about shape people's uh, mental model and we have to start with where people currently are. So, yeah, so that's the, the, the four aspects, the technical uh, the application, the stakeholder, and the whole um, societal uh, environment at this moment. That's a really helpful breakdown. One question here I have is earlier we've talked a lot about how many explainable AI methods as opposed to what we're talking about here, transparency, are really in service of user goals. So there's this directionality. We start with the user they kind of know what they want to use their system for, and that informs the questions we then ask. Transparency here, I'm wondering how you think about it as sort of an opposite directionality, where yes, in many cases, people do have defined applications, defined use cases, but we are still living in a world where there is a lot about these systems that we don't understand, and there are many limitations that have yet to be seen. So I'm curious how you think about transparency sort of informing perhaps the goals are going in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. I think it's probably relevant in terms of thinking, especially with large language model. I think this this question of uh, how do we do responsible use matter, right? So I think that's another motivation for us to really focus on the limitation rather than the capability because uh, a lot of the use is going to be shaped by our understanding of uh, what's limitation. And this can happen uh, for multiple stakeholders, right? For example, if you're an application developer, understanding limitation will help you decide, I have this platform, I have this particular user problem, where I'm going to use an LM and what is an acceptable use case for me to use LM. Uh, and end user um, understanding also shape their interaction. If I know the model tend to fail in this use case, then I may not have that kind of interaction with the model. So I think it, it definitely helping people understanding limitation and transparency approach that uh, highlight the limitation is a big part uh, of shaping this um, responsible use, whether it's at the, at the practitioner level or it's at an user level. Another component of, of what you talk about here is you speak to a number of different factors that make transparency for LLMs challenging. And one of the important ones that I think pretty much everybody is privy to is the fact that we are working with massive opaque architectures and there aren't answers to 
how and why these models work as well as they do. And what's interesting to me here, again, this is maybe the kind of high level thing. We've been talking about explainable AI a lot, but the concerns in here are looking for explanation as opposed to merely empirical observation. And that sticks out to me just because there is a line of researchers who are more, I think, pragmatic and empirical when it comes to, well, what we should be doing is more or less find what works. This model can or can't do this task. And we can observe these correlations. We can make correlative statements about what models are capable of and the behavior they exhibit, but we can only really justify what we can observe empirically. And to me, when I think about explanation and the how and why these things, it kind of goes a step beyond that. And so I'm curious if you think there's maybe a tension there with researchers who are very empirically minded and think that we can really only justify the things we can directly observe when it comes to, well, maybe we're seeking something a little bit deeper when it comes to the how and why of these models. Mm, that's a great question. I, I I tend to think maybe I'm also in this more um, practical, pragmatic camp that uh, I think one way, want to highlight like transparency approach is broad, right? Ultimately, it's about uh, having understanding to achieve your end goal. And I think human already have a lot of different devices to have understanding, right? Understanding and like having explanation is just one approach. We often do trial and error. We try something and see where things break, then that actually helps us to have, have a good understanding. So I think especially with, with large language model, we encourage this kind of more diverse approach, right? Even rethinking is explanation the right kind of paradigm would be we, we want to give people tools to do model interrogation to see for my particular use case where things might break that help us, especially for practitioner point of view, uh, to, 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 to have this more responsible use. Um, but there is a point I'm also interested is um, how do we have more generalizable understanding but even there, I think there's a lot of open question. I think there's one point, the, the Stanford paper, this risk and opportunity foundation model, they have a chapter about interpretability that's really interesting is this point of, um, do we treat essentially this one model versus many model paradigm? Do we treat large language model as one single model that is possible to have some kind of generalizable understanding from doing one task too many other tasks. Well, we have to treat it as a multiple model and for specific tasks, we need to have different explanation and we actually have to kind of resist the urge to, to generalize. I think that's, that's still very much open question, right? I, again, like understanding also have different level. You have lo- local, global uh, explanation. I don't know, even we have an approach, I say do post hoc local explanation how generalizable that understanding is at all. But there's also other approach that people are trying to have more theoretical understanding why this model works. Maybe some part of the mechanistic interpretability is trying to do that. So yeah, I'm very, very excited and looking forward to see uh, where things will, will, will uh, have breakthrough in that kind of work. Um, but there is still a question of, yeah, we can have theoretical understanding, but how that help for particular specific task. If I'm just trying to improve my prompt, 
does that help? Maybe for improving my problem, actually, it's more helpful for me to just doing a triangle or play where they have some kind of uh, assistive way to do it. So I feel there is an interesting intellectual question in terms of uh, generalizable or local understanding. I think practically we do need a very broad set of approach to help people achieve different goals. The last question I'll, I'll ask on this paper and LLMs has to do with something that Ted Underwood brought up to me in my conversation with him. He does a lot of very interesting digital humanities work. And he said that in some contexts, you could think of LLMs as being more easily understandable than other AI systems because they can fluently answer questions like, how did you come to this conclusion? Can you explain your reasoning? In one respect, yes, what it is telling us is a little bit more understandable. We don't have to do the extra work of figuring out how to read a diagram, for instance, because we can just read what's being said in natural language. But naturally, that does bring up the question of, well, how can you, how much can you trust what's being communicated to you? And this is something you've brought up in a lot of places. But I'll maybe just ask you or, or, or frame that question a little bit more broadly. When Professor Underwood says this thing about LLMs, and maybe they're a bit easier to understand because of this feature, because they can more fluently communicate with us. What do you think is right about that picture and what does it miss? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a fundamentally a question about faithfulness and uh, how we measure faithfulness and what do we think is a threshold or acceptable level of faithfulness, right? Um, so I think a fundamental challenge in this whole explainable AI field is um, inevitably we have to use some kind of a post hoc explanation just because a lot of models, they are not directly intuitive. Um, but we know that in theory, whenever you use a post hoc explanation, there is a loss of information. Uh, so it's not completely faithful to what the model is directly doing. And there are a lot of actively research, active research in terms of uh, um, how do we possibly define faithfulness? How do we possibly measure? Um, it's, of course, a hard problem because you may not have a way to, to, to directly characterize what the model is actually doing. So I think... Uh, uh, if I look at the measurement, for example, a lot of them are basically looking for uh, the kind of counterfactual evidence, right? Looking for evidence that is not factual, uh, not, not faithful, either uh, in some case, this kind of explanation may fail to predict how the model actually make prediction or some part of feature is missing. But there are also work basically uh, suggesting that is pretty misleading in terms of where the field is going because we know um, uh, a lack of a completely faithfulness is in inevitable. So the key question is not necessarily um, how do we quantify faithfulness, but what is an acceptable level of or threshold of faithfulness to use. So that may also goes back to um, there can be different kinds of lack of faithfulness, right? You may be uh, not making the right kind of prediction in some cases. Maybe you, you lack certain feature. Um, and this lack of faithfulness and different types of lack of faithfulness may have different impact. And what is acceptable is also highly, highly context dependent, right? Going back to 
in debugging, maybe it's less acceptable, but in decision-making, maybe some kind of lack of faithfulness is, is okay. So I'm very much coming from this existing perspective in terms of faithfulness when I think about LM. Of course, I think it's actually dangerous that many people are using explanation as it is without realizing that this is not really faithful. And as we discussed in the paper, there are examples that the model can actually give you contradicting information depending on what this answer is trying to justify. So that really get into, there can be deception and misinformation that people actually, if we don't realize that it's a, it's, it's, there's lack of faithfulness. Um, but ultimately, I think we need to do a lot of versus conceptual work in terms of are there different kinds of uh, lack of faithfulness? How do we characterize them? What is acceptable in different situations? And also empirical work, I feel, is needed to understand just what situation this model doesn't have faithfulness and can have like a dangerous situation that give you contradictory information. That's something at least I, I haven't seen and would love to see. I really appreciate that. The last question I'll pose to you is we've spoken a lot about different sorts of challenges that are coming up right now, especially when it comes to LLMs, challenges for transparency. You just spoke about some of the different things we need to figure out with respect to faithfulness. Very broadly, just speaking about ATI and AI, what do you think are some of the broad challenges ahead that you are thinking about that you hope other researchers and practitioners focus on? Yeah, I think... It's still the kind of uh, um, pragmatics, right? How do we going beyond this um, general framing of we need human-centered AI, we need responsible AI, or some people say we need participatory AI, um, to what are some actionable approach that we can do that? Um, again, thinking more concretely in terms of what is this ecosystem and who are the people involved in the ecosystem and how we can support them. I think that's something that uh, a question that HCI people are, are familiar with, right? Studying certain group people, understanding the needs and support them. Uh, especially for me working uh, often with practitioner, I think there's a huge opportunity um, both in terms of uh, having frameworks, like translating, for example, um, ethical framework in terms of more practical framework. And also, how do we lower the barriers for uh, people to doing this kind of work, whether it's uh, for practitioner to engage in responsible use, doing evaluation, or if we talk about, oh, we want AI researchers to take more uh, human-centered perspective, but how do we have actionable tools or approach for an AI researcher to think about what are the different downstream use cases where things might fail? Uh, so how do we make that more, more, more actionable is something I feel we, we need to think a lot. And then also, um, how do we take this view of ecosystem that build, uh, build community or uh, build communication channel for things to, to, to flow more easily, right? I feel like a lot of my work, a lot of HCI work is trying to uh, study some kind of end user or stakeholder and hopefully bring that perspective back. 
um, but who are going to read their papers and also this question of uh, can we facilitate channels that to directly have end users or impacted group to voice their concerns to directly impact this uh, development of AI technology, whether it's research or, or practice. So uh, again, how do we, do we support people in the ecosystem and how do we make this ecosystem a, a, a more collaborative work and also facilitate the communication is something that uh, we, we, we should tackle as a community. And I think it's especially important at this current time that going from technology development LM to uh, practice or having some kind of patient is almost too fast. Uh, we, we cannot rely on HCI researcher to do careful user research, bring that back. We have to also facilitate the channel of direct voices from end users. Fully agree with you here. And I think this is a, a great place to end. So Vera, I want to thank you for the work you're doing and, and the very, very important perspectives you bring to the rest of us. I, I think that everyone listening to this really needs to pay a lot of attention to your work. So I, I appreciate the work you do. And thank you so much for being generous with your time and speaking with me today. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. I feel I, I also had a lot of reflection and learning in the conversation. Thanks very much. That is all we have for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you enjoy what we're doing, there are multiple ways to support us. If you like the podcast, you should make sure that you're subscribed on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this. And finally, you can find our other articles and newsletters by subscribing to us on Substack and at thegradient.pub.